podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Heart and Hand is back for the season by Ladbrokes. Welcome to Heart and Hand, the Rangers podcast, the podcast that doesn't get international weeks off anymore. This week on Heart and Hand, it's your questions answered. This season we've teamed up with Ladbrokes and we'll be bringing you plenty of specials. Our first is bet £5, get £20. This means if you deposit £5, Ladbrokes will add another £20 to your account. As a listener to this podcast, you can get this by following the link at bet.ibroxrocks.com. That's bet.ibroxrocks.com. We'll be tweeting this bet £5, get £20 link, adding it on our Facebook, and we've put it in the description of this podcast too. So, welcome to Heart and Hand, the Rangers podcast. My name's David Edgar, I'm your host, and this week my guests are, well, you. Um, this is our becoming traditional International Week pod, where you guys can send in any questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. And uh, if the content doesn't work out uh, to be as, as satisfactory as you hoped, then maybe you have to take a bit of responsibility yourselves for the the quality of the questions. Apologies in advance for any stammers and ums and as that pop in. It's quite difficult when you are literally sitting talking into a microphone with uh, no one to bounce off and producing yourself at the same time, which isn't a metaphor uh, for when I get a really good question. Instead, I'm just going to go through some of the questions that we've been asked and, as always, we'll answer them as honestly and as forthrightly as is humanly possible without getting into any trouble with our legal team. Okay, kicking things off then, Duma Cabs says, uh, from all the players we've been linked with over the years, which one do you wish we'd signed? Don Hutchison in, I think it would be around about September or October 2001. When we signed Shot at Arvaladze, we were linked very strongly that week as well with Don Hutchison, who was a kind of mainstay in the Scotland team at the time and, and was doing pretty well at West Ham. But I just think he would have been absolutely ideal for what we needed and what we needed at the time because Advocat had a really good team. I mean, they, they could play some really attractive football and I believe there was a run-up to an old fun game where we won 11 games in a row. But then we lost the old firm game. We were in a bit of a, a run of losing them against O'Neill's team because we couldn't match them physically and we couldn't win a battle against them. And they would stop us playing football, so we were negated. And then they would they would just dominate us physically, especially at set pieces and stuff. And obviously, defensively, Don Hutchison wasn't going to change that. But the type of player that he was, where he was you know very scrappy, he was all action, he was skillful. Um, he scored goals, but but more importantly, he just was a fighter uh, as a player. And I think um, he has Rangers leanings. His dad was a Rangers supporter, and I think we would have loved him. I think he's exactly the type of player that we that we would have taken to our hearts. He had that attitude that that we love to see that kind of scrappiness, and if you like, almost as well that that kind of arrogance that I'm going to play my game and you guys are just going to have to deal with it. And we, we could have done with that with an injection of that. And uh, as I say, that season in particular, I think if we just had, we had so many good, talented, skillful players. If we just had one or two more scrappers, we might have got closer to them. And then, of course, you know, McLeish uh, came in and added a wee bit of steel through that through that squad. 
and we were then able to, to go on and win five trophies in a row under X. So yeah, Don Hutchison might be a bit of a bit of a left field one. Obviously, you know, we've been linked with so many players over the year. I remember when I was a kid, um this would be maybe Sunis's second season, and we were linked with Michel Platini, who at the time was considered, you know, if not the best, certainly one of the best players in the world. He was at Juventus. I remember seeing that in the back of the evening times when I got in from school. And it probably wasn't true, but the good thing about it was back then it could have been um, because we were being linked with you know, just about everyone and it was a really exciting time. So obviously when you've got these these uh, stories that papers run as a flyer, then you know we've been linked with... A, there was a time Alex McLeish was linked with Samuel Eto'o uh, and actually commented on it and said, yeah, he was a player... That we've been looking at, and, and clearly that would have been a fantastic signing. But for me, just as one that nearly came off and then just didn't in the end up, I think Don Hutchison at that particular time would have been absolutely ideal for us. Graham asks four four two or four three three, or does it depend home and away who or or where we're playing? Pedro appeared to buy with a four three three in mind, then abandoned it fairly quickly. Uh, absolutely, I'm a horses for courses guy. I think if you've got the best players and you can dominate and play any way you want against any opposition a la Barcelona um, over the, the last few seasons, although they're, they're struggling a bit now, or Real Madrid currently, then that's great. You can just play your game and it really doesn't matter what the opposition do. But we are not good enough to be able to do that, to just know that if we go out and play our best game but allow maybe their best players to to thrive or allow them to negate our system by not, not changing for it. I think Arsenal are a cracking example of a team who believe that they are too good to have to change for the opposition, but then it so often get proved that that's not the case. You need to be capable of beating anyone regardless what they do to you tactically, and we are not good enough to do that at the moment. So... Uh, four four two has its has its place. Four three three has its place. Four five one will will at times have its place. Four two three one will at times have its place. And um, you need to have a squad that's capable of playing that. Like most people, I think the squad's a little short in certain areas. That's only to be expected. You're not going to turn it round in one in one transfer window as much as as we would have liked for that to have happened. But I think we do at least have a little bit more tactical fluidity now. I think Pedro comes from that. A Portuguese school that's very pragmatic um, that, that, that school of coaching that says you look at the opposition you be well prepared, you know what they're going to do and you make sure that not only are you able to deal with what they can produce in an attacking sense but that you will be able to overcome anything that they, they do defensively and I think sometimes a tactic that's already been seen to, to work against us is, is this season has been teams pack the defence and flood the midfield and we're maybe a little bit short in those areas or short of people who have that creativity to to make the the, the killer pass or to beat a man or to do something unexpected um, which is again understandable these players are rare and, and they cost a few quid so we will have to be cleverer in terms of tactics, in terms of overcoming the obstacles that, that clubs will put in front of us. Uh, the Hearts game, I think, was a good good example of that. Ian asks, what needs to change to increase the flow of pounds from the EFL, EPL to the SPFL? Whole thing, wholesale rethink required or just accept banter status? That's a tough one. The first point, what needs to change to increase the flow of pounds? Uh, nothing, you can't do that. 
it's not possible. It's capitalism. People buy uh, what they want to buy. It's uh, supply and demand. So the English league uh, as a whole, but especially the top division, is the best marketed, uh, the most watched internationally, and without a doubt the the most cash-rich league in the world. And that is not going to change to Scotland. We're too small a market. We're too small a country, too small a TV audience. So forget about that. You're not going to be able to do it without some sort of coming from UEFA, almost, if you like, uh, socialist-style intervention where they do uh, something similar to what they do in the States in terms of the draft system and just change it around to say, no, we don't want the top clubs getting all the money and, and getting the top players. We want to make it more competitive, so we're going to you know alter payments and whatnot. That's not going to happen. The top clubs won't let it happen. If you look at the world, uh, generally speaking, um, the rich get richer and the gap gets bigger, so I'm not quite sure what is going to stop that from happening in football. Um, if you see the Champions League, it's already becoming it's already become a bit of a closed shop and that will only get worse over the next few years. I mean, the, you do see talks from from clubs or, or rumours that the big clubs just want to make it invite only um, and then just squeeze everyone else out. And we can talk about it will be the death of football and whatnot and, and you know, in some small ways it will die every time there's one of these innovations in air quotes from from UEFA or from the big clubs but you're not going to you're not going to do that there's there's no way you can market the Scottish League as being sexy and there's no way you can market the Scottish League as being attractive to, to foreign investors uh, the football's not good enough the how, how can I put this the look of the product the aesthetic of the product isn't sexy enough people aren't going to turn it on and be intrigued when it's pushing with rain and there's 3,000 people at a Mother Well St Johnston game that's just, just not going to happen uh, we will have to live with where we are and what we are and try to be the best at, at that. Try to be a good small league that plays good football and encourages you know youth development and whatnot. But again, that's that's utopia. That's if everything was was all fine and in place because at the end of the day, every club wants individual success and that's all that really matters to them. And, you know, Scottish football might be a, a, a shit tip, but we want to, you know, dominate our own shit pit kind of thing. So... I don't. I don't see it changing. Um, at the end of the day, I can understand why people are worried because you know kids just need to look around. Kids are running about in Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man City, Chelsea, Man United tops, rather than in in Rangers tops, which obviously has been exacerbated by the retail deal issues the last couple of seasons. So, we have to be realistic about the limits of our game, about the limits of our, our league, the size of the country, whatnot. I think that we have a good opportunity to make our league exciting and interesting, but will we take them? Uh, that's been the question. Scottish football, since I've been old enough to remember, has been gripped with calls for change. Uh, I don't know how many think tanks I have lived through, uh, or you have lived through, but I guarantee you it must be close to double figures by now. And nothing ever really changes. So I, I wouldn't want to, to be the marketing guy who's in charge of going out and selling a club and a country that never, or sorry, a club league in a country that, that never qualifies for major tournaments, whose clubs do very badly in Europe as a whole, um, with the odds of flashing success as, as the exception. And 
is at best a two-team league and currently is a one-team league and, and over large periods of the last 25 years has been a one-team league. So I just, I, I don't know. I think we've just got to get on with it as best we can and uh, make it as good for the people who do contribute to it, i.e. us, the paying customers, as we possibly can. Do I detect any desire to do that? No. <laughs> so, you know, every club looks after themselves and yeah, that's, that's a problem with a competitive a competitive league it's a weird business when you think about it that you wouldn't get companies like you know Tesco Sainsbury's and and uh, Marks Spencer's and Waitrose getting together to come up with what was best for the supermarket industry you know they look after themselves but in football uh, we'd expected to get these these businesses together and, and ask them to do what's best overall for the direction of the industry rather than for themselves and it's just not a natural reaction unfortunately Blair McLaughlin, being a fellow co-winning lad, do you have uh, the same as me and spend every other Saturday at Abbey Park and do you have any bus heroes? I, I did do it when I was a kid um, because, you know, it was pennies to get in and then when I became a teenager, you could take a carry out in and, uh, yeah, it was a good laugh. Junior, junior football is, is a good laugh. Uh, where else would you see a guy get sent off for nothing linesman as I did once and only receive a three-game ban? So you don't get that in many places. My bus heroes growing up were uh, Andy Clinton and Rab Keen, uh, 80s legends. Uh, Rab Keen was was known as Zico round bus park. And yeah, I mean, it would be fun. You'd, you'd get on the bus and go to you know, Craigmark and Mayball and places like that. And uh, you'll watch the game. They were always a fairly decent standard. And then on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, you would see the the stars of the team half cut around the streets of Kerwinning so that was that was proper football back then I'll always remember one of my first games at Abbey Park I bought a programme which was you know just a wee four page thing obviously done at a local printers and then at the manager at the time a guy called John Evans um, he's, he's kind of manager's notes said you know good result last week hard fought got the late winner and uh, obviously we're all delighted with that. So now you know moving on to this week's game. Um, hopefully you know get another at the time two points. Um, but enough about Rangers. Now to talk about the buffs and and that you know just thrilled me on. I was like yeah. So who know? One day the dream is that the buffs will make it through to the the Scottish Cup and and get a trip to Ibrox because literally the whole of winning most of winnings at Ibrox anyway. But the whole of winning would be there that day. Lock up your daughters. Just I Dave. What do you think the next five years holds for Rangers? I've got no idea and uh, no one does. And anyone who can tell you with a great certainty what the future holds for Rangers or Scottish football or any football team is either a liar or a fool. Uh, surely the last five years and the five years before that proved that to you. You can have a vague idea, but circumstances can change so much. Um, in five years, and one of the one of the bastards, I suppose, of football is that planning for long term is very very difficult, because anything can turn that around. You know, if 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 Pedro turns out to be an absolute genius and we romp away with a league title this season, well, nobody was expecting that, so that changes the plans of where you're going to be. If he's a dud and he has to be sacked by October, well, nobody was hoping for that, so everything changes again. And you never know, you know, certainly after a, a spell of not getting in the Champions League, have got into the Champions League, so did that change their spending power? If we get in, back into Europe, which you would expect us to do, go on a better run, we'll have more money, does that let us close the gap? You, you can't tell. All that I hope is that in five years' time, we are still financially secure, we're not doing anything silly, we're competitive, and that we're still playing to, to full houses 
that's that's really the most I think anyone can can predict or hope for. Senora Dell asks, uh, who was your most trusted colleague or colleagues on the RST board? Oh, loads. Um, a, a lot of the people on the RST board were and are friends of mine to begin with. So, you know, Scott, Cami, obviously, Fraser Martin, you know, guys like that, uh, that, that, that are friends. So, you know, I, I trusted them. Um, the two hardest workers at Trust, Christine Somerville and Joanne Percival, um, if they told you that they were going to do something, then that would be done. It was as simple as that. They were just fantastic. Uh, the people that I worked closest with, again, our friends were, would be Mark Dingwall and Stephen Smith because we uh, did the media side of the Trust and I must admit pretty much just you know, did what we what we wanted to do, which is, I think, still the best system that you give people a job and let them go off and do it. You don't micromanage and you don't sit over them or, or you don't get every decision ratified by committee. That, that was always one of the fights is that I would do media stuff and you say, well, you didn't run it past us. And I said, well, I couldn't because, you know, it was an instant thing uh, and you have to trust me that I'm going to deliver the right tone and, and whatnot. And, and I know that there were people on the board who resented that because I could sort of make policy on the hoof and I could sort of do, you know, what I wanted and take it in the direction. And because I was very visibly the, the face of the trust, people sort of responded more to that than they did to other people which was something I advised against actually when I stepped down I said don't get one person to do it get four or five so that it becomes the trust rather than you know another rather than David Edgar says which I think was happening too much at the end but you know I definitely used that ability to sort of push my own agenda because especially at that time it was incredibly arrogant and um, I'm still quite arrogant you know I still believe that my agenda was the best agenda Looking back, there were things I should have done better. But at any given point, if you don't believe your agenda is the best one, then why are you putting it forward? Why are you involved in something? Um, it, it's like that great Scottish, that great Scottish phrase: "You think you're clever." Well, yes, I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saying anything because I wouldn't want to prove my myself wrong. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of took advantage of that, and you know, Mark and, and Stephen and I. Because we were roughly of of one mind on a lot of things, not on everything. Jesus Christ, you imagine that um, being in, as one mind on everything with Mark Dingwall. But um, it's quite interesting as well because you've got Mark, who is basically you know Pinochet on the one side, and you've got Stephen, who is basically Hugo Chavez on the other side. And you've got me in the middle. Um, we're all really good friends and really close, um, but politically, you know, just so far apart. But our ideas for Rangers were all the same, which I always thought was was interesting. William Lothian, can you give us some David Murray stories and what was Martin Bain like to deal with? David Murray stories that I haven't told before. Uh, well, that's a difficult one. I'll tell you about the time we went to, to see him in... Uh, this was at Ibrox, went to see him, and he was in his office at Ibrox. And he was just back from holiday. He was very tanned. And he, he said before we sat, he said, oh, come on round, come and see this. And we sat down at the other side of his desk and he was showing us all these pictures from his, his holiday. You know, it's like David Murray's trip away. And there were pictures of him, you know, on his boat. And then he said, oh, look, that's me and Frank Lampard. Frank, big Rangers man, big Rangers man. I'm always trying to get him to sign, but he says he doesn't want to go and play at, at really rubbish clubs like Motherwell and Benfermline. I thought, well, we can't argue with that, can we? You know, it's not a trip a lot of us look forward to. Uh, so yeah, we we basically the first half hour of that meeting was spent David Murray's holiday clips, and 
that 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 was that was what he was like. You know, he was just to just if he said something, then people people did it. So of course, uh, he wanted to look at his holiday snaps. We were looking at his holiday snaps, and and you're kind of sitting there going, you know, this isn't what we're here for. But uh, if that's what he wanted to do, then then fine. So that that was a kind of strange experience, you know, as he's talking us through these these glamorous places and glamorous people um, that he knew. And you just think to yourself, you know, I, I've got to go outside and wait in the bus back into town and you know, got to take the train home. Uh, talk about two worlds colliding. Um, it was certainly that day. But he was... Uh, you know, he, he, his problem was he would say things that... Uh, I hasten to... Uh, sorry, I, I'm slow to say weren't true, but, but weren't true. <laughs> and then... Later on, when you would say, well, what about this? He went, oh, you know, I didn't really mean that. Or, oh, you know, you've misunderstood me or whatever. And because there was no consequence for him saying stuff like that in his day-to-day life uh, or people to question him, then it meant that whenever he would whenever he would say stuff to you, like, oh, we're going to do this, and you would bring it up six months later. Like the casino was a big one. Oh, we've got permission in place, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. Of course, none of it was true. And I don't think he did it deliberately to lie to you. I think he did it almost by the power of osmosis, he could make things happen. I think he did it by, if I say this is a done deal and I believe that this is a done deal and I push this as a done deal, it will become somehow a done deal. So you would hear about signings that we were going to make that we never made. You would hear about deals such as that 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 we were that we were going to do that never got done. Um, but I just think that was... That was his nature. That was his personality, as opposed to to him sitting there deliberately trying to lie to us. And I just think that Murray felt that you came up with your vision, and then you started acting that vision out. And it's there's a term for it in sales. It's called assumptive selling, where you assume something is going to happen and you speak about it as though it has, and you persuade people along by making your case one of inevitability that this is going to happen so you have to get on board now and through that you will get to the situation you want to arrive at and and like I say that was that was how he did business and for a while it was it was very successful for him but he he didn't ever get his head round that as supporters we remembered everything he said and we would then come back and say, why didn't this happen? And he really didn't get the internet age that if he said something to a paper, because clearly it wasn't like this in the 90s, very few people would keep clippings, but as he really couldn't get his head around. If he said in an interview and it went online, then it was there forever, and you could go back and say, you said this, and, you know, it didn't It didn't happen. Scott Brown, the case in point, Scott Brown, um, Murray was convinced that we were signing him. And then I later heard from agents involved in the deal that, to be honest, Rangers weren't close. So it's entirely subjective, but I think that he believed if I say something enough, then that is a a precursor to it happening. That's me sort of altering the world, which is a good thing to have. You know, if you're the type of person who genuinely believes uh, that everything you say is... Uh, as a precursor to it happening then that's great and through force of his own personality he could make stuff happen but by the end up he couldn't you know when forces gathered around him that, that he couldn't control and uh, they're, they're, they, it was gone you know that was soon enough he, he just lost control and it ran away from him and he could never ever get back and he certainly couldn't get back 
using the methodology that had taken them there. And that's the thing about successful people, that they don't change because they think, quite understandably, that the reason for their success is their personality or the th- or the qualities that they have displayed to that point. So why would they change? And it takes a very a very visionary fellow to know not to do that. And I don't think Murray was quite willing to do it. And in the second half of his tenure, you could see that that he was using a methodology that that, that was no longer fluent. What was it like dealing with Bain? He was smug and uh, aloof and he suffered from what I call doctor receptionist syndrome, which is I work for someone very important, ergo I am very important. Whereas to us, you know, it's like you're the lackey and he was treated by Murray as the lackey. So when he would come on and give it the big I am and you know, you're sitting there just going, you know, shut up monkey boy, the, the, the organ grinder's the one that we need to hear from. And he had strengths. I would be it would be unfair of me to suggest that he didn't. But overall, as a bloke, he was you know, not my cup of tea at all. You know, he was a kind of yeah, just just a, a bloke I, I could never warm to if if I was cremated next to him. Um, very arrogant, very cocksure, but not bright enough to hide it and to use it to his advantage and that's that's the problem that he had and he also thought that he had as I say this, this very important role whereas we all knew he was a functionary and maybe that that was why he was like he was maybe that sort of insecurity manifested itself with us uh, and with fans in that way because he knew we knew that Murray was the guy who called all the shots so perhaps it was that I don't know but uh, to deal with he was uh, I, I was never impressed with it and I've dealt with just in my career I've dealt with a lot of um, more shall we say successful CEO types and uh, of, of bigger companies and yes than Rangers who have more power and, and have more to do with and they don't act like Martin Bain acted you know they, they don't act in a reactive fashion which he did because as I say he was not a visionary and he wasn't there to implement a vision he was there to carry out orders so although he was the chief executive in a business the chief executive drives it's the chief executive's vision they drive what the company does whereas at Rangers he was just another at the end of the day he was just another post holder and if it hadn't been him it would have been someone else and it would have been seamless because he carried out orders and he had to run every big decision past someone else and if that's the case you can have the fancy title but you're not the chief executive so yeah and I think from us he sensed a sort of disrespect um, because we didn't respect him and I don't think he liked that so fair play to him you know he's, he's managed to, to stay in football still to this day and I see Sunderland are um, benefiting from his, his unique skill set so yeah, all the best to them a couple here from John what did Murray say privately about other people running Scottish clubs as your time the trust coincided with the decline from the 90s and interesting to know how his ego handled facing up to 80 million debt and for once failure on the pitch did it influence his actions well, um, it certainly influenced his actions because he came back as chairman when the bank told him to. Uh, he had he was he was gone, and uh, he you know did not want his name associated with what was going on at the club. That was McClellan's role. McClellan was brought in as a stooge um, and as a patsy. So two years later, he was basically told by the bank, "Go in and fix this." 
and and that's what he did. But as we found out that he wasn't maybe quite as straightforward with how he had solved the the the, the problem, you know, with a fifty million share underwriting, which essentially just transferred debt round to other areas of his business. Um, which would later come back and lead to the problems with H. Boss uh, Lloyd at the time. Later on, and his his last spell, his two thousand and four spell till he left, it was grudging. Uh, and I don't understand quite why, but I don't think he took as much pleasure out of the success under Walter as he had done the big spending. You know, ninety success, and I found that odd because for me it was far. Uh, I don't know if you can a better success, but it was far more impressive what Walter did. In my second spell, you know, the first spell we could blow anybody out of the water in terms of transfers. You know, we had by far the the best and biggest squad could add to any point, and our rivals weren't close to us. Whereas the second time around, Walter started miles behind, overtook them very quickly, and then just constantly delivered trophies and. To me, Murray, maybe he just didn't feel as big a part of it because he wasn't making signings um, or he wasn't involved as much. So, I don't know, but he always seemed a little bit removed from that and I never got the same sense of pride or enjoyment from him as, as you might have assumed during that. So, you know, did it influence his actions? Yes. I'm pretty sure Murray knew from 2008, the, the crash, that... W- his whole business empire was headed because it was built on debt. As a lot of companies are, you know, T- Ted Turner built CNN on debt. It's not unique to David Murray. Uh, that that a lot of companies do. They get highly leveraged and they build off it. But I think he knew that his was overextended and had always been overextended, but had been allowed to be by his relationships at Bank of Scotland. And he had been given a lot more rope than was sensible. And I think he knew from 2008, that crash onwards, that it was going to come to a very, very sticky conclusion. It became apparent quite quickly to him that things were different. And I think then he began to try and sort of plot a way out that let him save face. And I'll always be convinced that the White Deal was... There's a great conversation between Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon that publicly at the time they were talking about Vietnam, that they were only going to get out of Vietnam if a long-term settlement that they left the South, uh, the South Vietnamese secure was settled, they wouldn't cut and run. And then privately, you're hearing, because Nixon famously recorded these conversations, that they're saying, if we can get it a hold for about a year and then the, the, North Korea, uh, the North Vietnamese run over the top of them, then that's fine. We can say, well, you know, we left, it was fine, and we did our best. And that was, I think, Murray's strategy although the the one side he's talking about he's going to leave it in good hands and he's going to be secure he wanted out any which way and I don't think he thought it would collapse as quickly or the way that it did but I do believe he knew he was too bright not to know what was going to happen he was too bright to be duped by Craig White he he was too well connected and he did too much research into people to not know who and what Craig White was So I think he had hoped that he would get out, it would maybe decline slowly over a four or five year period and he would be able to say, well, it was fine when I left it and, uh, or, you know, it was sustainable when I left it. And I think quite collapsing it as quickly as he did took him by surprise. And uh, I doubt very much that that was something he, he had foresaw. 
but I do believe from 2008 he knew what was going to happen to Murray International Holdings and he knew what that meant for Rangers and I think that that influenced him so maybe that was why he didn't take as much pleasure in the latter success because he knew that for all the trophies Walter was bringing in his reputation was going to to hit the floor and wouldn't recover so maybe maybe that was it um, someone else asked and I do apologise because your name's been cut off here as, as I printed it out how do you think Murray feels about what happened I genuinely think he thinks and this was from talking to him at the time that it was inevitable and that he did the best that he could and that nothing could have changed it he maybe made one or two wrong decisions but they were made for the right reasons and therefore fate was inevitable what was going to happen was what was going to happen That that's my belief that's what I think I think he th- thought that Nobody else could have done a better job. Nobody else could do a different job. Uh, okay, we did that, and maybe we wish we hadn't done that. And I suppose he's right, because you can't change the past. And there's no point in going, if only he hadn't invested in ABTs. Clearly, if only he hadn't invested in ABTs. But I don't think that what happened to us keeps him up at night. I think what happened to his reputation because of what happened to us keeps him up at night. Um, Murray... And I can uh, I can sympathise here because I'm the same. Murray views everything primarily through the prism of how does this affect me, um, and I do that too. Naturally, my natural reaction is always about myself, and it's, it's a character fault. And I I have had to train myself over the years to go stop. Let's take a step back. What's the bigger implications to this? What does it mean to other people? You know, and it's not this is not a situation that's about you, and. Again, though, he's never had to do that. So I think he's more sad about how it leaves his legacy as opposed to what his legacy actually is, if you, if you can if you can follow that. I think that he would like to be remembered in the way that we remember a David Holmes or, you know, going further back, a Willie Wadley even. I, I think that that's how he wants to be viewed and I, I know he's aware that that's not the case and that there's nothing he can do. And that's why, although you get the odd spin piece from him, he's been generally quiet. If, if Murray thought that it was rescuable, that it was redeemable, then you would be seeing a lot more of these puff pieces about him. You would be seeing a lot more um, arse-licking than goes on. But he kind of knows that it's not going to be possible. And I think... He thinks if he just basically waits it out long enough that the Rangers supports ability, which is unmatched by any other football club, to romanticise the past will get people to go, ah, you know, ah, well, he did. He gave his nine in a row. And the further away we get from the pain of 2012 and subsequent years, I think the more he believes his reputation will be repaired by time and I personally hope that's not the case because it doesn't deserve to be. Um, as I've said before, yes, he gave us nine in a row. He didn't, you know, the players did. But yes, he was the chairman during nine in a row. My view, David, was always you were the chairman who fucked up ten, but, you know, it's maybe because I've got different standards about Rangers than you do. But he he did a lot of good things, but in the end he did a really bad thing. And it's it's a bit like saying, you know, the captain of Titanic was on... He, he was... Um, on course for a world record Atlantic crossing until he hit the iceberg and Murray's view would be well that's a bit harsh on him because if you look up until he hit the iceberg everything was great whereas of course the world's view is yeah but he hit the fucking iceberg so that unfortunately 
is the difference of opinion that he has and that someone like me and I assume a lot of guys like you has. During your time with the Trust, did you receive any help or advice from fans of other clubs in similar positions? No. And it was very disappointing because we had entered this in the idea that it was almost an extension of trade unionism. And there are quite a few of us um, who are strong trade union ad- advocates who joined up and we believed that, you know, it was we'll put aside our petty differences and we'll we'll get on with things together um, for the benefit of football supporters, no matter which club they support. And then you would go into meetings and you could just, you know, tell that that was the thing you know, we're Motherwell fans we're Aberdeen fans we're Hibs fans we don't like Rangers you know and you're like oh, for fuck's sake um, so it didn't happen I remember going to a meeting one time where there was uh, been called I think by the Chief of Police's Society whatever that is you know the, the group of Chiefs of Police and their reps and it was a bit disgusting fan behaviour at the ground and offensive singing as, as everyone in Scotland seemed to be and we went in and we sat, you know, chatting before it and we go in and we sat down and I swear to God, like, the first thing that the that that happens is someone from the Celtic Supporters Trust stands up and says, we would just like to say before this begins that we will not take part in any joint initiative with the Rangers Supporters Trust. And uh, I think it was actually Henry McLeish was chairing it and he just turned around and looked at us and we were like, oh, well, there you go, that's... Uh, They've, they've spelled it out for you so that that was what you were up against and I don't know necessarily if I did anything to actually that's a lie I do know necessarily if I did anything to change that I didn't and that's maybe why I wasn't the right guy to be in situations like that because my view was when they did that was like fuck them you want to go and battle we'll battle and we'll win um, because I'm cleverer than you you know the Scottish thing of you know he thinks he's clever I did in fact I knew I was cleverer than them and no offence to you know, anyone on the Celtic Supporters Trust at the time. But I was. And I was like, if you want to make this a rock, if you want to make this public and, you know, um, we'll, we'll go to town on each other, then we'll win because I'm, I'm quicker and brighter and more intelligent than you. And if that, that maybe seems a bit unfair, but any dealings that I, I had with them, um, to me it would have been akin as, you know, like beating a, a rabbit at Ludo. I mean, yeah, you've got the win, but... You know, look what you were up against, and it was the same w- with them. You know, any time you met them, they were always uniformly these sour-faced, badly dressed malcontents. You know, who you can tell were just itching for any opportunity to be oppressed. And probably why I was the wrong guy was that I was quite happy to um, oppress them. So, you know that that that's maybe a character flaw on on my part. But uh, yeah, I was always right. Fair enough. You know what I work with is we'll work against you and. We're Rangers, we're Rangers fans, we're better than you, and that's all there is to it. Uh, what, what can I tell you? I, I was an arrogant young man, you know, I was an angry, arrogant young man, and that, that was my belief at the time, and they never really did anything to, to change my opinion of it. it they were always desperate, because I was all over the media, and people would ask, actually, I'm being unfair, because uh, I mentioned Motherwell, the Motherwell Sports Trust were actually decent guys, they grew into something else but they started off as decent guys and they asked for a bit of advice on how to get into the media and stuff and I gave it to them and then they said to me on time so oh, you know the Celtic Trust they're really desperate to you know get one up on you and I said well you know they're welcome to come into debates and stuff I know that people have asked them they're like no they don't want to do that and it's because they, they, they knew I would win and to me that if, if you think that you're point in a debate is so weak that you're going to lose to someone you really like uh, you really dislike 
what does that say about the point you're starting off from? Because to me, it suggests that you know maybe the point of view you have isn't uh, worth holding if you don't feel you can defend it up against somebody who's just got a quick mouth, which was really all I had to offer. So who knows? Uh, that's, that's something to look back on. Cambridge Blue 54, what happened to takeover panel and the cold shouldering of Dave Kelly? Is it still an issue for the club post-SD deal? Up until we can get a share issue, then yeah, um, that kind of thing is an issue for the club. It's one I know they're working to resolve, so I suppose watch the space. The only thing we can say there. Gordon McCool, do you think we will cut the points gap significantly on the bastards? I hope so. Um, you can't legislate for what they do in all their other games. If they have a season like they did last season, then there's nothing we can do to influence their points total except better showings in their matches. What we need to concentrate is ours and we need to be 15 to 20 points better off than we were last season minimum and see where that leaves us. So I would assume that we will cut the points gap and if not, the season will have been a failure. And But I agree significantly, you know, if we're three points better off than last season, we can't call it a success. Gavin Curry. If there was a Rangers Mount Rushmore, which four players, managers, legends would be on it? That's a really good one. Um, well, you'd have to have Bill uh, Willie Waddle Soonis I think and then for a player John Gregg uh, I think that's probably a quite conventional one but you know you've only got four four spots on, on Mount Rushmore so or Ma- Mount RFC more so there you go um, yeah those four then my personal four of course would be um, Stuart Monroe Dan Egan, Ali McCoist, and uh, Brian Loudrop. So, there you go. Richard McClucky, who's had the best 90 minutes in an RFC jersey that you've personally seen? September 1995, Brian Loudrop against Wraith Rovers. Yeah, I know. But we beat them 4-0, and the next day in the Sunday Mail, I'll just, you know, as a description of how good Brian Loudrop was that day he got 10 at a time when they didn't give out 10s and the guy who was doing the match day report said my editor actually said you can't give him 10 because 10 is perfect that indicates he couldn't have been any better that's why we don't do it and the guy said I know it's a 10 because that day he was just I mean talk about PlayStation football that was at 20 years early he was astonishing I mean it was like watching Pele in your mind, you know. It, it was, he was beating players. He was involved in everything. He was doing tricks. He was he was just unbelievable. And yeah, after that match, I was like, that guy is is not human. It it was an incredible ninety minutes. Other ones would say Barry Ferguson in the Scottish Cup final two thousand and two two thousand and three. So two thousand and three, I suppose. Um, against Celtic was. Truly, truly unbelievable that day. He was a fabulous performance. And the last half an hour in particular, where when we went to one down and he just went, nah, we're not losing today and I'm going to make sure of that. And it was just an incredible... People talk about Roy Keane and that fantastic performance against Juventus in the semi-final in 99 of the Champions League. Ferguson that day was that type of performance where just one guy drove on everybody and from him they took strength and the performance was, was just out of this world. Uh, Michael Malls got four goals against Motherwell 
in a, in a game and I don't think he could do he could have done much better that day so yeah the, those are performances but the one that immediately springs to mind um, is definitely the, the Brian Loudrop one Pedro's Caravan Club thoughts on Rangers versus Benfica friendly uh, good uh, if we're getting a fee for it it's always good to go to places where you can develop a market and there's obviously in Toronto there's a big Rangers expat Rangers sport anyway so I can see the sense in it yeah that, that, that sounds great uh, Fly Cup says time to move on and start talking to the BBC again no nothing's changed so there's there's nothing we can do if we go back to them they've won because as far as they're concerned they haven't done anything wrong it's us who have the problem so they would need to make the first move because they would need to admit yes we, we hold our hands up it's the way that we report you and the way that we treat you differently to other clubs and because of that we're willing to do this this or that uh, and until they do that, then, yeah, there's there's nothing we can do. Otherwise, we just go back and we say, we accept the way you treat us, we accept a different standard, and we are quite happy to go along with it. So, as far as I'm concerned, if the BBC never change, then we never have any rapprochement rep- uh, with them, because why would we bother? Uh, there's nothing in it for us to do that. And I, I don't know about you, I mean, I don't, can't say that I miss... Um, I, they miss us more than, than we miss them so nah not not for me um, you know the, we're not going back on our knees to the BBC um, given the continued way that they, they treat us so nah not for me Adam Johnson do you have any idea how high it went nobody knows how high this goes nobody uh, you, you can't put into it goes infinity high that's how high this goes Andrew Somerville, what do we need to do to win the league? Spend wise, number of players, etc. Well, yeah, I mean, all of those things. It's, you need to. It's a simple and also difficult thing all at once. You need to get better players who are consistent enough over a season to win the title. There are examples. You don't always need to have the best squad, and you don't need to look that far. Walter squad probably wasn't on you know on a, a par man for man with with the Celtic squad when we won titles. Um, O'Neill's squad. Initially, certainly wasn't on a wasn't a par with us winning the title. The ten in a row season, absolutely, we should have won the title that year. So, it's about getting a good squad of players together, not worrying about what the outsiders do. I think realistically, we're still half a dozen players off, both in terms of first team, you know, guys that would come in and, and make a big impact, but also in terms of having quality to lose a couple of players. Look, right now, if you looked outside and you lost Alves, Jack, Morelis, we would be in big trouble. So. I'd say we're minimum half a dozen players off of a serious title push. But again, that's not something you arrest in one window. Richard McClucky, who was the most complete midfielder, Barry Ferguson or Scott Brown, asking for the BBC. Um, uh, I think that you'd have to be the type of person who enjoys going to school on a bus with exceptionally clean windows on the inside to even think that this is a debate and and honestly all football allegiances outside Jesus Christ Barry Ferguson pissed all over Scott Brown you know it's not even close he he could do everything Brown started off looking like he could be a fantastic midfielder and then gradually developed into a guy who just you know sits in front of the back four takes a pass knocks it four yards to Armstrong occasionally fouls somebody and the Scottish media have a three point whip about saying how fantastic he is uh, I, I really, I genuinely don't see it, and I'm not just saying that for for club loyalty. I've, I've never really seen it with Brown after that initial burst at Hibs. 
to me, he just he, he growls and his tenure has coincided with Celtic having a much better side than anyone else and no competition at times. So fair play, all you can do is is be of your moment and, and he was and you know, best of luck to him, but to compare it with Barry Ferguson as a player, Jesus Christ, you know, the guy that was strolling through Champions League groups and stuff in his teams, it's it's just it's just moronic. I mean it really is. Uh so no, I think you you need to be in at the Lego for and your brain be a touch addled to, to believe anything other than that. Brian McCulloch, thoughts on the national team and the hatred of Rangers from the Tartan Trannies? Well, I take it Brian's not a fan of them then. It's sad, really. Um, I, I wish it wasn't so, because I know there's a lot of Bears who who follow Scotland, who always have, and I think that in something that's supposed to be about community, if you then remove people from it on the grounds that they're not welcome because they're not like you, how can you lay claim to being a community? And that's why I think the Tartan Army has this anti-Rangers element to it and for an organisation that pride themselves on their inclusiveness and their openness, then that to me is a massive glaring contradiction. And the fact is that as a Rangers fan, you go to their games and you feel uncomfortable because it's happened to me where I, I have gone in the past to Scotland game after I sort of lost interest a bit that you are well aware of this element in the crowd and especially as it's become quite a trendy thing in the last couple of years to, to do. But, you know, you see the other night, there's anti-Rangers banners in the, the stand. and To me, if you want to, to do the community thing, then you have to say everyone's welcome, we're all working to the same goal. And we see that in the Rangers support, you don't have to like everybody. Um, there'll be people that you don't, it's a broad cross-section of support, but you work together because it's the same goals and, and they don't do that. And I can understand fans who don't want to spend time or money to be in a group of where there's a large number that dislike them. That's not to criticise any Rangers fans who, who are Scotland fans. Please don't take it as that. It's your national team and you are as entitled as anybody else to follow it and uh, go for it. Go for it 100%. Don't apologise for it, though. You know, Don't do not do that, that tame hun thing where you go in and go, well, I'm a hun, but I'm all right. No, fuck that. Um... As I say, you can get off your knees, go in there swinging, and just if you see, I mean, I couldn't. But if I'd been a Rangers fan, and I am not hard, far, far from it. But if I'd been in that and I'd saw that wee Wallace thing the other night, then it would have been getting ripped up. And if a square go ensued, I'd probably have lost it. But I would have, I would have wired in. Um, so no, but get off your knees and get them told. You know that you don't need to be. Uh, you're not looking to be singled out to be something special when you're following Scotland, but you're certainly not looking to be singled out to be something less. And, you know, can can it be repaired? I don't know. There's a whole generation growing up. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I kind of lost interest in Scotland. Not deliberately. Um, it just it just sort of happened. And I remember, I was a huge Scotland fan, of course, growing up and, and through the 90s. I remember a game against Belgium. I think it was 1999. Scotland scored in the first minute. And I was sitting watching it with all my mates and everyone jumped up and went, yay! And I went, yay! But I was like, I'm not really that bothered. And then Scotland went 2-0 up, but Belgium equalised in the last minute. I think it was Daniel Van Bijten, the Bayern giant, who scored in the last minute. And they were all gutted. And I was, yeah, yeah. And, I, and it just it hit me. It was like, I don't care. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that I don't really care. I, I kind of, I'm watching this as a neutral. I don't get excited when Scotland score and I don't, get upset when they concede so I don't wish them any harm 
but I just don't really feel connected to that. And I mean, that that's 1999, so it's long before questions of, sort of Britishness and nationality were to the fore. So it's not that, it's just I didn't feel, it didn't give me that visceral, I've been punched in the balls reaction if Rangers concede or lose. And it doesn't give me that joy and, and being high as a kite for two days that Rangers give me after a good win. So I just thought there's no point faking this anymore. So, you know, best of luck to them. I have nothing against them at all. I have family members who are big Scotland fans, but I just think that it's complicated at the moment being Scottish, being British, being whatever it is, and I don't think that really helps it. Um, as I get older and, um, you know, I'm obviously quite kind of lefty, as, as some of you may know, and, and, you know, very socialistic. And part of that is not necessarily being a big fan of placing barriers between people of which nationality can do so you know I've always felt British I've always felt Scottish I, I, I've always felt European I, I don't really see the need to divide up and, and I've never quite understood why oh he's Scottish so you have to support him I don't I don't feel it and if I don't feel it I'm not going to intellectually try to lie to myself and force myself to do it so that's just my personal opinion and as I say if you feel differently you are absolutely entitled to do so and I'm not criticising you anyway Big William style good name does Luxembourg's draw with France make our European humiliation appear less embarrassing no I've seen a few people try to argue that but no um and I hate that argument. Well, you know, we're slightly less pish because if you look at them, they had a pish result too. It doesn't. I don't give a fuck how France got on against Luxembourg. You know, Rangers lost to the fourth best team in Luxembourg over two legs. It's the most humiliating result in Rangers history, and you can't explain it away. Don't try to. Don't try to put it into context that it doesn't deserve and doesn't need. It has its context: humiliating and atrocious. We don't need to change it and, and no result is going to, to change it. The only one I could see you having a slight argument for is if that actual team had then gone on and, you know, got to the, the Europa League. You could say, well, you know, they were a better side than maybe we thought. Um, but a national team doing something does not have any bearing at all on how the league is, you know. If you look at, for instance, how currently um, England are, you know, they've got a league that fancies itself, but you can't say that that league is strong or weak based on England's performances. Uh, they're different things. So, no, uh, not for me. During the banter years, if McCoys could spot a player and sign talents like Robertson from Queen's Park and Kingsley from Falkirk, would we have ruined them? That's an interesting one, yeah. I mean, it would have been tough. Uh, it would have been tough for them, especially back then. I do think, though, that young guys might have been given a wee bit more time to develop and I think somebody like Robertson who would have hit the ground running as he did it in the United and has quite an exciting style of play I think would have been really popular but who knows you know it's in the past now we are we are hard on players and that wouldn't have been different then but I I think that with his style in particular he he would have been on a, a, as a bit of a fan's favourite soon enough but fuck Ali would have played him on the left wing or something so you never know uh, Al Bundy Loyal, in your opinion, which single individual has had the biggest influence, good or bad, on the history of our club? Good, Struth, bad, Murray. Um, for reasons spoken about earlier. Also from Al, how would you like to see our 150th anniversary celebrated other than the treble? 
Um, I want us all to get together, crowdfund an enormous amount of blue paint, then one night, without telling anybody, very quietly having organised it through back channels, to go and paint the entire city centre blue. Then I want us all to go out there the next day and get bevied. I don't drink, as as you know from um, listening to the pod, but even I'll get back on the sauce that day. And we just let every fucker know, man, are you lucky to have this. 150 years of the greatest institution ever. Get down on your knees and salute. So that that would be my way of doing it, which is possibly why I haven't been invited onto any committees to help plan it. Queen's Eleven, if RFC offered you a job to host and improve the official podcast, which is poor, meaning you had to give up H&H, would you do it? No, um, I like... It, it wouldn't work for a start because it wouldn't be this and it wouldn't be what they want it to be, so it wouldn't suit anybody. And I like doing this. I like being able to do stuff that interest me I don't I like not having an answer to anybody I like doing it with my mates it's, it's it's all that kind of thing and I couldn't do this show with the club um at all so w- what would be the point all you would get would be something that wasn't a good club podcast and wasn't a good version of the heart and hand podcast the other thing is and this is going to sound really wanky and I do apologize for it in advance but you know I'm, I'm gonna put it out there nonetheless I've never wanted to work for the club and there's no job approach from me or CV sitting in a, a filing cabinet at Ibrox and I realised as soon as I started people used to say that to me they were like yeah, oh, you just want you know a club time you want to work at the club it's like well I don't see how that's possible given that David Murray hates me with a passion and after well now you know I'd, I'd be too old I wouldn't have anything and that was also a thing I wouldn't have had anything to offer I didn't have skills they were looking for um, but I just don't think that I could do that and then do this that's that's the point and one thing I have I think I'm told okay by people is that I have to some degree at least a degree of credibility and that people know what I'm saying is honest and isn't coming from any sort of agenda um never used to believe that some people always thought I had an agenda in terms of as I say getting a job but it that was actually you. Anyone who said that to me is like, no, you have clearly, utterly misunderstood. Um, if you said that you want to storm the gates and take over the running of the club, then yeah, we wanted to do that, but only because we knew where it was going. But uh, having at least, I think you guys know that if I say something to you on here, it's because I believe it rather than because someone has asked me to say it. And I would be loath to give that up. And to give it up to do a bad job on something wouldn't be wouldn't be something that, that would interest me. Jack Cranmer. Had we remained in the top tier with the situation the same as it has been the last three to five seasons, would Ali have been a success? No. Ali's just not a very good football manager. You know, that's that's really all there is to it. It's a shame, but there you go. Ian, what are your thoughts on safe standing? How would you react if asked to move seat to accommodate this? Um I I probably wouldn't have a problem. But that's because I've not sat in the same seat for decades so I would be okay with it uh, safe standing's not for me I'm, you know, I don't want to stand for 90 minutes at a football match I'm one of these sort of like sad old bastards that uh, at least admits it I don't pretend that I would like to, to go and stand for 90 minutes but I don't see why if people want the option that it shouldn't be there um, would I mind moving? No but like I say I can totally understand that people who have sat in the same seat for years uh, and it because it is a bit of and you can say it's just the same seat I like moving because I like to get into different sections and I like to get different views of the pitch and stuff so I move every couple of years anyway but 
for guys, it's kind of like an extension of home, and it's a lot to ask to take it off them because you've asked them to invest in having, if you like, their piece of Ibrox every year, and then you're asking them to take it off them. So I can see trouble ahead with it, but overall, not not against it. Graham, when Rangers win 55, who in the media will have a breakdown first? It'll be uh, BBC Scotland because they'll be covering it that day. So um, Richard Gordon, Tom English, that lot, they'll be the, the first ones that you hear. And we'll need to organise a rota of people to record different, you know, radio, TV, etc. So we can and monitor Twitter so we can get them all together uh, and collect them in some sort of uh, bonus anniversary DVD type thing. Stufa54, which legends of the club have you changed your opinion on since I've left Ibrox, e.g. Barry Ferguson, Terry Butcher, etc.? Uh, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I think that because of guys like Butcher, especially, I think it's been years since I've not really kind of been able to change between my, my viewpoint between the player and the person. And I, therefore, I don't really get disappointed in them because I don't have massively high expectations of them. You can get angry at the stuff they're saying, but it usually fits a pattern. So for me, as I say, personally, I don't tend to get annoyed at them. I, I might think they're weapons, but I don't tend to get annoyed and say, you were a great ranger, how can you do this? Because I think that there is a big difference between um, the player and the person. And we don't really have a right to ask them to behave... As a as a person, I'd prefer them to do other things, but when we pay their wages, we have a right to expect them to act in a certain way as a player and to perform in a certain way as a player. But when Rangers stop paying their wages, they can go off and be as big a prick as they want. It's nothing to do with us, unfortunately, anymore. And I think it's a bit sad, but that's their choice. And, and you know, it's not for me to say yeah, who's right and who's wrong. Barloch. With all of our departees hitting the road running, hitting, hitting, sounded from the East Coast there, hitting, uh, why do you think they choked at Rangers? It's been a common scene for a while now. It's expectation. It's as simple as that. Some guys can't handle it. And that that's not going to change it. It's a hugely, hugely demanding atmosphere. And it's okay saying it's a lesser standard of football, but these guys especially last years, have been coming from a low-ish standard of football. So to then arrive at a club where you have to be winning, ideally at half-time, but certainly at full-time, every game, probably with a good performance to boot, and even then you're still probably going to get some abuse for a, a misplaced pass, then that, that can be a challenge. And a lot of people, and not just on the playing side, have struggled with that, have struggled with the expectation level and also the instant forget system that we have, which is that while you're there, we forget immediately all the past successes and go, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? You know, you lost last week. Yeah, but we, we won the league last year. I don't give a fuck you lost last week. After you've stopped playing, you'll be held up for your achievements. But a lot of guys wanted money. Money wanted, you know, ah, but I did all this. And you're like, yeah, but look where we are now. Um, but also Warburton suffered from that. He couldn't believe the criticism he got second season. Because he was like, look at last season. And we were like, it's gone. right? You know, What are you doing now? So for players, it's the same. And for some guys, they, they just shrivel up. And they can't, for whatever reason, play on an actual game. I also think, watch these guys for a few months. I think they'll settle down. I think a few of them were playing below what their level would be at Rangers. Be it Waghorn was a good example. Confidence issues. And then when they've gone away and maybe their confidence has got up, they've soared a little bit. But I think soon enough they'll go back to the mean 
and they'll go back to being what they are, which in the most cases are average players. I don't think that we've lost any superstars recently, and I, I think that best of luck to them. But I think that soon enough they'll they'll go back to the standard which they are. You know, they're not great players, they're not terrible players, they're somewhere in the middle, and I think most of them will end up showing that and have a career that reflects that. And finally, Ian McMillan. How high up in your life would you prioritise being a Rangers supporter or is it like me, just a natural obsession? At this point in my life, it's sort of like, you know, eating, sleeping, breathing. It's just something that I do. You know, it's just it's a part of my life. You know, I'm a Rangers fan. I get up in the morning, I look for Rangers news, I talk to Rangers fans, I go to the games, I watch, I think about them far too much. It's it's just been hardwired into my DNA now for so long. I mean, it's over 30 years that I can't not do it. And I've, I've occasionally tried. You know, I remember being on holiday in New York. Rangers were playing Dundee. And at New York time, the kickoff was like 11am. And I was like to my missus. I said, oh, don't worry, but this was before smartphones. And she's like, well, the game, um, surely you can, you know, miss one game. I was like, I've got, we're in New York. Let's go to, you know, wherever we were going that day. And we'll go and we'll do our sightseeing and stuff. And then I could feel it and I could feel it and I could feel it. And then sort of, half an hour before kick-off, I said, look, there's a range of supporters, but I checked before I came out, and whatever it was, and I'm going, um, jumped in a taxi. And and that was it. I can't turn it off. I can't just say I am not going to care anymore. That is not possible for me to do, as I suspect it is for, for any of you guys. And I know that people think they always finish up the pod on a little kind of, um, you know, call to arms kind of thing, deliberately. Um, I mean, maybe I do, but they're never rehearsed. I want you to know that. I'm I'm not good enough at acting. I wouldn't remember it either. And you would be able to tell because it would sound like I am reading it and trying to put an emotion in the wrong places. So I generally just try to end on a high note. And one of the reasons is, is that I'm buzzing after talking about Rangers for an hour. Because it's such an important part of who I am and who you are and how we conduct ourselves and how we live a life and how we view the world and I know that there'll be people listening that go it's just a football team and that's cool if that's all it is to you wonderful come along on a Saturday we'll say hello you know we'll enjoy it listen to the show I hope you enjoy it but I know it's not like that for an awful awful lot of people because I know them and I am one of them to me it's generally speaking if it's not first thought in the morning, last thought at night, it's in among the earliest and the latest. And it dominates my life in a way nothing else does or has. Um, and people I know who, you know, are, are workaholics and they have, you know, are driven to do it. That's not me. People who I know have family and, you know, drive into that. I've, uh, I, you know, I've got a loving wife. I love my dogs. Love my family. But at the end of the day, bar my parents, Rangers have been in my life longer than anything else. And I have been married and divorced. So Rangers have outlasted a marriage. And nothing anyone can do, including me, can turn me off from it. It's not something that is possible. And no matter what, I will always care how they're doing and I will always care how the fans are being treated and I will always want to be part of it and to be amongst it and there aren't many things in my life that don't wear off after a while there aren't many things in my life that aren't 
that aren't things that I can t- that that are things I can say. I will definitely be doing this in ten years. Someone asked me earlier, you know, where this is in five years. I hate that question, and loads of that. I hate when people say it in a job or people say it in life. You know, a job interview or in life. You know, it's like where do you see yourself in five years? I have no clue. If one thing my life has taught me over the last twenty years is that you can't predict. You can just get up and do your best on the day. But the absolute one thing that I can promise wholeheartedly is that in twenty years I will be a Rangers supporter if I'm still around. It's just a fact. And nothing I do is going to alter that or change it. And nothing I would want to do would alter that or change it. If you feel it to a certain level where it touches every aspect of your life, and Rangers, me being a Rangers supporter, has touched every aspect of my life. You know, I've, I've lost jobs over it. Was involved in the breakup of my marriage, you know. There's, it's been a huge, huge part of my life, and I don't regret any of it for a second. I don't regret the pain that it might have caused me, because it gives me so much high, and it's led me to meet so many interesting people, and it's given me so many opportunities, and it's just been a a lot of fun. It's just been a lot of fun, and being a Ranger supporter is as integral to me as getting up in the morning doing my best for my family, doing my best for an employer and just being all round a decent person. I think being a Rangers fan encompasses all of that and I think that there is a certain standard we hold ourselves to and I'm glad and I don't want that to ever, ever change because Rangers Football Club, the institution the last 10 years have shown us is about the fans. It's the fans that make Rangers Football Club what it is. It's the fans who have made Rangers Football Club what it is. It's the fans who will be there when all the money men and all the big talkers have gone. It's us. We are that club. It will always, always belong to the Rangers support. And do you know what? I mean, it's not a choice. It's not a decision. Uh, it's It's a life. And, you know, I think if you're sitting down uh, as a kid and you're saying, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a fireman? Do you want to be an astronaut? Do you want to be the president? You know, there's there's many things that that you'll say, but I can guarantee you that if you sit down when you're sort of four year old and say in 50 years I want to be a Rangers fan, then you won't be able to make a better choice. Okay, folks, my name's David Edgar. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you again later in the week. Bye. Heart and Hand is back for the season by Ladbrokes. Sports Social Podcast Network. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.